I'm J.R. Woodward, and Jeb Lowy Nichols is my guest on our social landscape. I first heard about Jeb in Uncut, a British music magazine, and basically my Bible. And they glowingly reviewed one of his albums years ago, so I checked it out and added a few songs to my playlist. Fast forward a few years, and their review of a newer album made me pick up a few more songs. So I didn't know a lot about them, but at some point, I realized that the songs I liked had some progressive working class style lyrics. And figuring this wasn't coincidence, I decided to learn a little more about him. And what I found was even more interesting than I would have guessed. He was born in Wyoming, and in pictures, he's often wearing denim and some sort of cowboy-looking hat, which is definitely different than the image I have in my head when I hear his music, since it's infused with soul, reggae, hip-hop, and trip-hop, in addition to a little bit of country, too. It could just be my lack of imagination and trying to marry the look to the sound. I don't know. After a few years in art school in the early 1980s in New York City, he left for London, where he lived with Nana Cherry, Adrian Sherwood, and Ari Up, working on music and showing his art. Eventually, he left London for a few rural acres out in the country in Wales, where he's been since 2000. There, he's continued to create visual art, write, produce, and record music, and publish a few books as well. So our discussion starts with a little bit about his background. Then we move on to the role of art and culture in navigating contemporary times. We also talk about art as storytelling, and there's a little bit about punk and reggae music in there as well. We talked a few times over the course of two weeks, so we bounced around a bit and went back and forth over a couple topics. And I was also fortunate that he indulged me with a song from his newest record. So make sure you listen until the end, where you'll be rewarded by him singing Big Troubles Come In Through a Small Door from his home studio. Hey, JR. Hey, Jeb. How you doing? All right, man. You all right? Very good. Thanks. Yeah. So as I said on the uh, the email, we got a hurricane too. So I hope we don't uh, lose lose power here. Um, it's the hit Nicole. It hit yesterday down South Florida and I'm in North Florida. And this morning was kind of rough. Power flickered on and off, but I think it slowed down a little bit right now. So if we get into any issues, uh, we'll just have to get back in touch. Um can you maybe walk me through uh, your background and your bio? You know, you've traveled a pretty unique path, in my opinion, Wyoming, Missouri, Texas, New York, London, you know, Wales. Could you maybe just kind of walk me through how, how you got to where you are right now? I, um, I was born in Wyoming, as you say, on an um, Indian reservation, uh, the Wind River Reservation. My father uh, was an archaeologist, an anthropologist, and he was involved in a peripheral way, but he was involved in... Indian rights and that sort of those movements. So I was born in Wyoming and stayed there till I was about five or six. And then my dad did his doctorate at the University of uh, uh, Colorado in Boulder. So he moved to Boulder for a few years and then went to Missouri where he was, where he was teaching at uh, Central Missouri State in Warrensburg. So I, I grew up until I was about 14 in Missouri. We, we then went, went to Texas for a few years in Austin when I was 16, 17. And uh, then I, the day after <laughs> I graduated high school in 1979, I took a bus to New York. All right. uh, so I got to New York in 79. And, you know, I thought as a sort of naive kind of Midwestern kid, you know, I, I, I was in love with punk. Basically, I'd heard mm-hmm. some punk. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd heard the Pistols, the Ramones, that sort of thing, and I, I kind of had this idea that maybe punk was going to be the end days of Leonard Skinner. 
you know, that we were never going to have to suffer through Southern rock again. You know, that this was, you know, that Fleetwood Mac and Peter Frampton, it was all gone, you know, and, and, and I, for one, love the idea of that, you know, and uh, I got to New York and realized very quickly that punk hadn't really even got to America in, in the way that I thought it had. And that it really, that, that wasn't what I was interested in anyway. And that what I was interested in was hip hop because that okay. was just started, mm -hmm. you know? And so I got obsessively into, into hip hop. And, and so then I was in New York for about four years and I went to Parsons school, art school there. Then went from New York to London, I had some friends that I knew in, in New York and then from I stayed in London for 20 years or something and then moved to, to Wales in, in 2000. Okay. And we're 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of rural area, as far as I know, right? You kind of out in, very out, rural, out in the, very, out in the yeah, woods. Very remote. Um, very remote, you know, through a couple of gates down a gravel track and uh, <laughs> no neighbors, no human neighbors. No human neighbors, right. right. You know, and uh, I mean, that, that, you know, that's the thing I think. You know, I went through, you know, when I was 17, I got to New York, you know, and I just, like a lot of 17-year-old kids, I think, I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven, you know, that this was mm -hmm. suddenly coming from a place where I was the outsider, mm -hmm. and I loved it, you know, I really loved New York, you know, and it was like, I was kind of involved in the downtown scene, but there was also the hip-hop thing from Harlem, and, and then you know, at that time as well, there was a post-punk thing, you know, so bands like Pill and yeah. Slits and yeah. Gang of mm -hmm. Four and Young Marble Giants, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I loved all that as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was a good time for me to be in New York. You know? Sure, it was, sure. It was a great time. If we have time, I want to come back to that um, about the punk um because I don't want to, I don't want to take the time now. Cause I don't, I don't want to push your time too much, but mm -hmm. I do, if we do have the time, I want to come back to that one. So I'm going to write myself a little note. Um, Cause that, that is an amazing time to be there, but also reggae. And so, you know, reggae is going that at that time too. So um, from what I can gather, you've been a musician, visual artist, producer, novelist, probably other things that I'm not aware of. Um, do you have an overarching like identity or definition of self and in, in sociology, we talk about like a status set. People have a set yeah. of statuses related to roles, but then like a, master status too do you have yeah. something that you kind of hang your hat on as your your number one since you've done so many different things well I, I i have thought for for a very long time uh reading people like gary snyder you know mm -hmm. and, and those kind of just slightly post beat writers that you have to make a commitment you know that you have to commit to place you have to commit to you know some sort of feeling of self you know and i think my commitment very early on was to poverty. Mm. You know, I, I wanted to, you know, be serious about that. And so, you know, that's even why we came to Wales. I think, you know, we were looking for a place to be poor. Mm, right. Now I can do, I can write, I can do music. I can do, you know, whatever I need to do, artwork, whatever, but it all goes to just maintaining my poverty. Okay. And, and that's, that's fine with me. That's, that's mm -hmm. something I think is a, commendable position to take in the world you know mm -hmm. i think that unfortunately capitalism is phenomenally good at co-opting everything sure you know sure. no matter what it is it ends up working at the behest of capitalism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i think that kind of the only thing you can do 
that's completely outside capitalism is nothing. Mm. That's you know, the only if you do nothing, it's very difficult for capitalism to work with that. Right, right. Yeah. That's good. You're kind of beating me to a question I was going to ask in a minute, but uh, stuff still, I'll still ask it. I saw because this that it's a good segue here. So I saw uh, there's a survey question I saw a couple of years ago, and I asked my students this question. I teach a a problem a class called social problems, or sometimes Ooh. called modern social problems. And the survey says, um, "Do you feel things in this country are generally going in the right direction, or do you feel things have pretty seriously gotten off on the wrong track?" Now, nationally in America and in my classes, also a lot more people say going off on the wrong track. And as an expatriate, I'm not sure if you follow much going on in the U.S. So we could apply it to the U.K. and there might not be much difference between the two in the end. But uh, and I'm not sure what social markers you would use or what would be important as your measuring stick. But how would you answer that question? Do you have you brought up capitalism as a good intro here? But do you you know, how do you see this? the state of the union are there specific things that trouble you or conversely you see things that give you hope for for change i see almost nothing that gives me hope for change i mean and i don't think that's a bad thing no, i mean i you know i think this is a you know I, i'll come back to that but i i think that you know this notion that somehow we've gotten off on the wrong track i think is a slight fallacy mm-hmm. i think we are the wrong track mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've taken no other track than what we could have taken. I think evolutionary, in evolutionary terms, humans are disasterers. That's what humans pursue is disaster. You know, they, it's like asking birds not to fly or mm-hmm. fish not to swim. You can't mm-hmm. ask humans not to create a mess. We, we're a mess. You know, mm-hmm. our brains are too big. We can't figure out all this. You know, we can't figure out any kind of way of living with the things we invent to make our lives simpler you know we spend all this time trying to figure out ways of moving in which our feet don't touch the ground you know and and and, you know there's there's no getting away from that for me anyway that sense that that humans are doing exactly what they're supposed to do Mm. which is make a mess of things and Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a tiny blip in the hundreds of millions of years of of, of this planet, you know, so I don't, you know, I'm not one who throws up my hands in horror about these things, you know, I just right. think this is where we are. And I, I think it, it would be an interesting thing if humans could be a bit more graceful about where they are now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's this arrogance of humans who think we can fix it all. And this irritates me, I, you know, that somehow, you know, the, the notion that was we used to live in a time of the unsoluble problem but now because of our arrogance no longer think that we think that all problems are solvable but that does that question the survey does presuppose there was that we were on the track at some point right you know so that's right yeah that's that's a good point like if we've gotten off the track that must mean we were on it at some point we were on it mm-hmm. um so for you then capitalism would just be an the the latest you know, manifestation of the human condition that's destructive yeah. to begin yeah. with. So it started yeah. long before capitalism. In other yeah. Words. yeah I, I mean, I think you know, it could be made that it started the day the humans, you know, wanted to plant tr- crops and stay mm-hmm. in one place. And, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I don't know. I'm not a, you know, I mean, you know, I've read my Lauren Isley and I've read those people that, but I, I, I just can't see that humans ever, 
you know, an animal who's fueled by greed and, and the, the need to accumulate and maintain that accumulation was ever going to end in anything other than where it's ended. Yeah, and there have been conscious decisions made along that way. You know, if you think about America as an empire building, there's a good book called America as Empire by William Appleton Williamson. He talked about all these different specific moments in U.S. history where the decision was made to continue to be an empire and not to just mm. be cool where we are, but like, you know, no, all, all along the way. But this uh, is still, you know, the, I mean, this is still the, the the mantra of all Western politics is growth. Well, sure. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to have growth, you know, over here, Biden as well, everybody, you know, mm-hmm. we have to have growth. Right. And and you just think, well, <laughs> as, as long as we're going to continue to grow, we're going it, to, it's a disaster because right. we can't, you know, the, on the planet we can't continue to grow we can't you know i mean any six-year-old can can, can figure that out <laughs> you know but that's not okay. and they're not they're not running the country and yet we've based our entire you know we've been based our entire political system on growth you know until there's a, a a politician who's brave enough to stand up and say okay let's have four days of electricity let's have one trip in your car a week but that that's never gonna happen no you know like when did it start because you're kind of saying that it's always just the human imperatives towards greed and i would like to think there was a time because we've been on the earth a long time where that wasn't the case and so if i go to Engels, you know who wrote with marx uh frederick Engels, mm-hmm. and you know he thought it was the development of private property you know like that's really when you now you have a surplus of stuff and i don't need your shit as much as you need mine so you're gonna have to pay more for it and stuff but before that there was maybe a lot more equality so do you think in these old days let's go back like ne- before the neolithic revolution even or whatnot um that we still had that that inherent need for more stuff and growth and greed, but we just didn't have the power to effectuate it. Or were changes and decisions made along the way that have pushed us into this position? Because if that's true, then maybe we can push ourselves out of this position. Well, I think there's two things there. I think that that um, I, I would agree that we've been pushed into this position. It seems to me. I, I'm not a, a scholar of, uh, of history or of sociology mm-hmm. like yourself, but it would seem that. Uh, there have been other options. You know, I think that, that the American Indians, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, not that they were a you know, homogenous whole, but, right. you know, aspects of the American Indians were very different than the European counterpoint or, you know, the, the way the Japanese, mm-hmm. well, you know, the Shinto, you know, and Tao and that sort of thing, that was a very different way of organizing themselves than the European counterparts, you know. So I, I think that there are options available, and and there have been other ways of of being. I just think that that when it becomes, you know, like with the American Indians, you know, when when they're presented with with rifles, you know, then then everything's different. Uh, that, right. That's the game changer, you know. Right. When they're when they're presented with that level of greed and that mm-hmm. level of avarice mm-hmm. and that level of total non-empathy mm-hmm. well then it, the game's over you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i think that it, i i don't know how that level of non-empathy was was achieved and how, yeah. it, how yeah. it was arrived at, but right. but but it certainly was you know and right. i think that it and and i you know i think from what i've read about american indians particularly you know they're, they're 
it didn't go both, you know, this wasn't something that, that was, you know, there, there was empathy on the side of the Indians who looked at this white people and thought, you know, what's the problem here? You know, is there something we can do to make this situation better? You know, I mean, you know, you know, so I, I don't know. It, it would seem to me that when that overload of the, the desire to get to have to maintain what you've gotten and had. Yeah. That drives empathy away from you can't afford empathy anymore. And then that leaves you free to dominate. That leaves you free to pursue the crusades yeah. and to pursue yeah. the genocide in the new world. I'm a believer. I believe everything that I hear. So in an interview, uh, if you give me a minute here, I'll uh, backdrop for this question. In an interview years ago, you said, I've always loved the idea of very beautiful music carrying a much heavier message. I think that might have been in relation to the fellow travelers, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure how you define heavy, but a good number of your songs are what I would call political uh, and not necessarily political in the Democratic Republican, you know, Tory labor sense, but rather they talk about power, powerful people, Mm. powerless people and things like that. So just a couple lines um, I would like to pull out from heaven right here uh, for the ways of the world seem to frustrate always stealing food off the next plate. Only hate is our fate and it's too late. We get the crumbs from the big cake. That's how we're living. Uh, I've been looking to find a job somewhere. There's 10 men just like me every time I get there. Uh, And of course the song that the to be rich should be a crime which eschews subtlety <laughs> saying how did you get your money sir who did you walk on who did you steal it from for one man to be rich another man must be poor reminds me of um tim wise he's this anti-racism educator says we always talk about the underprivileged but by definition there's an overprivileged but we don't ever talk about the overprivileged yeah, you know yeah. or, or uh don marquis the the old literist and poet said uh when someone tells you they got rich off hard work ask them who's <laughs> so that's what that line reminds me of <laughs> so uh you do have uh so do you view your music kind of specifically as a vehicle for making these kind of heavy statements well i have to say i i i don't write a lot of political songs because i don't think that's my strength you know i mean i i i love that sort of thing i mean you know you talk about the reggae tradition you know and i think that that early quote was was particularly about reggae you know it's yeah, about man. this notion Culture of like and... you know like i remember sitting around you know you, you listen to kind of people like the mighty diamonds or gregory isaacs particularly that period of 70s yeah. roots reggae when the bass and drums were so heavy i mean you know they were just they were thundering along mm-hmm. and then you had this phenomenally beautiful harmonies on top yeah you know and 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 often those harmonies were talking about incredibly sad you know, tender, you know, compromised things. Yeah. And and so that, that I always love that notion that, that, you know, that there was a strength in fragility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we forget that a lot, you know, that, that, that people can be admired because they're fragile, because they're vulnerable, because they're, you know, they don't have strength. For yeah. the very fact that they don't have strength, they should be admired, you know. And, mm-hmm. and I think that reggae does that very well. I think soul music does that. I think people like Sly and the Family Stone always did that incredibly well, you know, sure. make these incredibly heavy grooves, but quite light, beautiful things on top. 
Yeah. The, the mighty diamonds, uh, it's a great example. Um, uh, all those really high harmonies, you know, and then you look Whoa. at a, you look at a picture of the dudes, you know, and you can't believe that that's kind of coming from their mouths. These beautiful yeah. high. And that singer, Ooh. the lead singer just recently died, didn't he? Like within the last year or so. Uh, yeah. 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 He, yeah. he had one of my favorite voices in, in all of music. I loved how he sang. Oh, me too. Me too. Yeah. Okay. I, I like a lot of singers in different genres, but as far as reggae, he was, he was just one of my favorite singers. Ooh. Um, okay. So that, that notion of heavy, uh, but also having vulnerability, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. I had not thought of that. Um, there's a quote, there's a late communication scholar, George Gerbner. And he once said, the telling of stories has always been the primary shaper of human history. And when I first heard it, I kind of looked uh, scoffed at it a little bit. And then I thought about it more and you can go back to the cave walls or the Bible or whatever. The telling of stories has always been the principal shaper of human history. Um, do you agree? You, you write a lot of stories in your, your books, your art, your visual art, tell stories, your music, tell stories. Do you think it is a shaper of human behavior or a reflection of human behavior? Definitely. Definitely. I think it is. Yeah. I think it's also over, you know, overrated in just in the sense that people love stories and that, they forget then how those stories are told. And I think that's what I find interesting, you know, is how, how those stories are told. What's the syntax? What's the language used? How are they constructed? You know, not just, I, I, I get very, um, <clears throat> what's the word, bored or something with, with the well-told story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not particularly interested you know I, I lose interest very quickly mm-hmm. and that's why a lot of pop music not because i dislike it or something but i just find it a bit it just doesn't grip me you know like i say like peter peter frampton or Fleetwood sure. mac or something or queen or elton john i just find those beautifully constructed craftsman-like stories not of interest to me Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they're good or bad or positive or negative. They're just not, they don't do it for me. Yeah. I think um, I, I'm not a literary scholar, but um, Suzanne and Gertrude, I noticed a lot of the sentence structures that you use are not traditional, you know, just, Ooh. just kind of like normal story that you would read quote unquote, like you, you move a lot of different ways with the dialogue and just straight up grammar and where you're, you know, putting periods and colons and stuff like that. So maybe that's another manifestation of it but again i'm not a, a liter literature professor um so i started this uh series of interviews with different people after reading um this was i don't know when she said it but a couple years ago at some point uh joni mitchell said um when the world becomes a massive mess with nobody at the helm it's time for artists to make their mark and, you know, Nina Simone has said art should reflect the times and uh, there's just different reflection versus creation. But what do you think should art, does art have uh, a place here in, I don't even know how you would say it, but like riding the ship kind of like being Ooh, leading, absolutely. leading the charge. Well, I don't know about leading the charge at all, but I think that it should at least talk about the times in which it's being made. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, there's another quote to add to those you already just said uh a Bertolt Brecht quote and somebody said to him you know in dark times are there is there any need for songs w- will there be songs mm-hmm. and he said yes there'll be songs about dark times uh, yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and, and that's I think that's that's the great thing I mean you know that, that that you can make you know once again this goes back to the beauty 
over a, you know in in out of context you know like you can write about the the times you're living in but you don't have to kind of i mean i mean i'm not a very big fan i think of of manifestos you know of, of mm-hmm. you know this is the way we're going to go forward because i'm i'm too much of an anarchist for that i i i would hope to live the unplanned life you know that's what i would look for you know that the live the life as yet unimagined okay so your songs that do talk about issues of power and working class and the the rich man and these kind of things um is that is that a manifestation of the same ethic is that just something that you have to get out that's on your on your brain or is it intended to try to reach other people and have them maybe have a change of perspective or is it just no, i just not- got to say the shit that's on my mind yeah, exactly. I think I've just got to say this. You know, I'm a 61 year old man. You know, I can't escape the fact that I grew up and was influenced by certain kind of left wing, mm-hmm. you know, anarchist, whatever, you know, things. Right. Right. So I'm still of that school. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I still like a bit of I, I, I mean, I, you know, I love, you know, like just looking at your midterm elections. You know, mm-hmm. I stayed up and watched, you know, you know I mean, I even though I think it's all a folly. I, it, I still yeah. interests me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, uh, and this gets this has kind of changed my answer, my question here with one of your earlier comments. But um, if you had like one magic bullet where you could make what change that you would consider to be positive or progressive, and going back to your evolutionary idea, maybe you wouldn't have you wouldn't have any answer to that. But I always am. I lament the fact that we have this duopoly, this kind of political oligarchy, where really it doesn't matter in certain ways—Republican, Democrat, whatever. It's just you know, power, power, power. So that's where I would maybe start if we could find a way to change that. But how about you on a on a grander scale? If you had, you know, if you could pull one lever, what do you think would bring about the best social change? And do you can you get to it through art? I don't think you can get to it through art at all, yeah. ever. No, I think art is a peripheral thing. that's just somebody on a sideline but i think that in terms of change that would affect the most amount of people i don't know it's it's difficult you know you think like like the first time that we figured out if we lend somebody money and then charge them interest on that money yeah we'll make money you know maybe if you go back to that and 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 wipe that out then Mm -hmm. that that changes everything Mm -hmm. you know that so I, I don't know, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. I, this is hard, but... You know, we have, we have such a sort of strange relationship to animals, mm-hmm. you know, right. and, and if, if we could somehow re-examine that, then we would be very different people. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> Interesting, though, you don't think that art can... We, we had this debate for a long time in sociology, like, if you really wanted to make change, however you define change, should you go through economic channels political channels or cultural channels and and my phd was in a fairly marxist program so i kind of always went with the economics but then uh, you know i read i think it was a poet named alex caldero who was saying you know you have to go through culture and art first because that can create empathy and that will make change because of empathy and i had never really thought like culture i thought would be like ah, the, the powerful people their culture is the culture that becomes the culture of the society and this guy was saying no go through culture first because you can reach people at a different level mm. and then they might produce economic or political change so i think he's absolutely right i mean i do think that i think that the fact that when i was 15 
I heard the Sex Pistols sing God Save the Queen. Yeah. You know, and that made me completely question, you know, what, 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 why was there a queen? What the yeah. fuck, you know, why? What, what, you know, and I mean, you know, but then, you know, you think about it, well, you know, my dad was a Quaker lefty. My mother was an artist, you know, so I was kind of primed to have those feelings yeah. by culture, not by politics, but, yeah. you know, we didn't have any money, you know, yeah. so I grew in a certain way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and it, it was culture that made me open my eyes and made Made me a certain kind of person. Now I don't know if a whole, you know, world full of people like me would have made any different mess. I'm sure that, you know. That's but, a good question. Yeah, but, that's um, a good question. You know, but uh, but certainly it was culture that made me what I am. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So maybe there, maybe there's hope. All right, lightning round, almost done. Uh, so you mentioned, um, and I had written this in my notes, you have said that you moved to Wales in part to be poor, as you just said, but and because it's unpeopled. Uh, you said it, uh, in a video, I'm not a hilltop Buddha. I'm just a person who lives a certain way because it's the only way I can live in the sense that I'm not a rampant consumerist, rampant capitalist. I live in opposition to that. Uh, maybe you're one of your song characters. Are you Skinny Jack? Yes. Uh, I want to leave all the ways of men. Done yeah. me wrong time and time again. Skinny Jack says I've had enough. I can't be surrounded by all this stuff. Move to the woods, grass for a bed. Says now I got to get rid of this stuff in my head. So, you know, you lived isolated, relatively isolated, not, you know, hermitage or something, but these last 20 years, but you've spent a lot of time in cities and communities. Uh, Allmusic.com said an artist at home on the range and on the streets of the city. So moving away from that into Wales, what do you think would make community work? Like from your perspective, like what kind of people or participation or structures would make community work instead of falling apart? Or, or is that not even possible with the human condition? Well, it's possible. It's certainly possible. I think it's. I think technology has made it less possible mm. because I think that that technology opens up, you know, small communities to to ridiculous aspirations of which they can't be a part of, and you know, and I think that, um, you know, living here. You know, it's very difficult. You say, okay, I'd like to be a part of the community, whatever this community is. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. My immediate community are all sheep farmers. Right, yeah. Who, you know, feel no, feel no compunction at all about murdering hundreds of thousands of sheep every year. And, and that's, you know, that's their thing. But I don't really want to be a part of that. And But I also don't want to be the person that's standing there pointing my finger at them and telling them that they're doing wrong. So, so those kind of things always split communities i think right right from the from the get-go i think you know it's interesting to me to look at that things like communes mm-hmm. or even like you know hippie uh, communities in yeah. california and you know the, like the diggers say and things like that you know emmett grogan was always a big favorite of mine you know and you know that but they, there's always this underlying melancholia of the, the difficulty of community you know that they try all these different ways of having community and yet it always seems to kind of break apart or come to nothing and yet 
we're obsessed with the word community. Right, right. How many times a night do you hear, well, we in the gay community, or right. we in the LGBT community, or we in the something, you know, the Republican community, you know, it's just nonsense. There is no LGBT community. It's just a lot of people who love different people. You know, mm -hmm. it's not a community. It's just a bunch of people. Okay. I don't know. So I, I, we're very confused about this word community. Mm -hmm. And it's also a sort of, it's it's the thing that people lust for more mm -hmm. than almost anything else, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it, I, I, I don't know. It's very difficult to look back and think when those communities work. But we've we've been communal since we've been on the planet, whether it's hunter-gatherer tribes or something. You know, we, yeah. we, we do seem to Absolutely, have, yeah. we strive for it. But uh, mm. which kind of then goes, it's kind of maybe we have these two, based on your earlier comments, we have these two drives that are maybe not, uh, you know, exclusive to each other. That the the what makes people, like you said, say, "I'll lend you some money, but you have to pay me interest." Well, why why do they need to be lent money in the first place? Like, what happened to their sense of social community? Why are they having? Yeah. To, why you know? Uh, so maybe they exist together. You know, and, and that's that's the dialectic, perhaps. You know that. Yeah, I'm. I'm that they yeah, talk about. I mean, no, this is the thing. You know, you have to get away from this kind of binary thoughts. You know, that it, everything's one way or the other way, or it's black mm -hmm. and white. It's not. It's you know, we're a very confusing <laughs> yeah very sure. confusing species you sure, know i mean sure. we're uh, uh, deeply conflicted you know i think the problem with community always often is just the this the, the problem of power right right you know right. who holds the power and what do they do with that power right and that's why you know often when you get these kind of neo anarchist communities even like amish communities or communities which don't have a hierarchy I think they hold together, but then there's always some sort of strange thing that often gets in the way of them becoming permanent. And that mm -hmm. thing is usually the lust for power. Um, I spoke with uh, Noam Chomsky, the, the linguist. He considers himself an anarcho-syndicalist. And I had not really... Syndicalist, yeah. Syndicalist. I didn't know much about that. But I guess like labor and the the working person kind of becomes the central focus. But... If if yeah. that ever could manifest, I, I assume probably power would still would still end up splitting, you know, splitting it into. Ideally, it wouldn't, but I can see what you mean. I, I, can I say one thing about that? Just, just thinking yeah. about that yeah, anarcho syndicalism. Please. The thing that always has fascinated me about that. I mean, and I love Chomsky, you know, and I love anarcho syndicalism, and I and and all that. But you see, the problem with that is that it's still humans. The community begins and ends with humans right, right which is why it was always interesting with american indians where they included and and you know certain shinto tribes in japan and things mm -hmm. where the community didn't you know it didn't end at the end of human that, mm -hmm. that animals were part of the community trees were part of the community grass right. rocks everything was part of the community and i think that's the big problem i i have with anarcho-syndicalism is that it's all focuses on the needs and desires of humans right right your book suzanne and gertrude um i read that and i hear a lot of your voice in suzanne just from the some of the songs and things and, and other interviews and the little very little i've been able to find about you um but then you know i look at hilly and hilly has this you know this desire we have to help people uh, and i can see that being also something that maybe you attach yourself to was it kind of autobiographical but the combination of those two, or do you just want to be Gertrude and 
just be left alone and be quiet? Well, certainly, I'm much more. I lean much more toward toward uh, Suzanne. You know, Suzanne, and you know, and just. Um, but that book was very was written very much out of the sense is fiction you know and i mean and you have to keep reminding yourself it's fiction sure. I'm, I, I'm not writing autobiography i'm not writing a memoir and uh, i'm not writing a, a manifesto you know i'm writing a book of fiction and it's just really it was a book to try to surprise myself about the kind of life what it is to live a very remote rural life now yeah. you know not a r remote rural life when my great grandmother lived it but yeah. now you know, in a time of technology, in a time of upheaval. Yeah. Um, what I was going to ask you earlier, talk about earlier, was when you uh, said you were in, you got so involved in punk, and then later you form the fellow travelers. And a while ago, I talked to uh, Jason Williamson of the Sleaford Mods punk band, and he doesn't like reggae at all. Like he's like. I'll listen to a little bit, but I can't do a lot of reggae. And how did you get into reggae from the punk background? Because I do see a lot of overlap. John Lydon, you know, going down well, the, the, down with the Virgin Records and whatnot. I think I listened to reggae before I listened to punk. Okay. You know, that's the thing. Like I, And I don't know exactly how it happened, but I think I saw The Harder They Came, The Harder uh, okay. They Come, the yeah, movie, when I was about 14 or 15 or something. And then I... Just, I, I bought a Jimmy Cliff album. I think I bought a Bob Marley album. You know, so I just got into it. And then I heard punk. And uh, I think I was always looking for this thing that was going to deliver me from the hell of Southern rock. You know, that, that was really my, the, the thing I thought I was going to find, you know. And, right. and first it was reggae and then it was soul and then it was, it was punk, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but, and for me, the pistols they weren't ever the start of anything they were the end of something yeah they were the yeah. end of of, of rock you mm -hmm. know and of, mm -hmm. of that kind of mm -hmm. you know drums and bass and you know that rock thing and that what they gave birth to the pistols was post-punk so the slits and pill and as i say you know gang of four young right. Jones, all that stuff which i loved i really loved that stuff yeah mm -hmm. yeah the uh Oh, man, I should have written this down too. Just what you just had mentioned it about. Um, oh, do you, are you familiar with that um, Frontline Records? It was part of the Virgin label sure, yeah. for like mm -hmm. just two or three years. And I, I yeah. bought that little box set. And in there, it has in the liner notes, it talks about John Lydon hanging out in Jamaica, recruiting talent for this label because yeah. he had credibility. Not yeah. just because he knew reggae, but you got, you know, you're getting white people screwed by the crown. You get black people screwed by the crown. And there was kind of mm. some, you know, some some companionship there, which I think is pretty neat. I never would have thought about. That's probably what first hit my mind. I knew there was this overlap, you know, even some of the early, like, I don't know, police or something. People are trying to blend some sounds. But reading yeah. that about John Lydon, I'm like, OK, now I get now I see that link. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that, that Lydon was very different than like that's a good example Leiden was very different than the police you know i think oh, the, yeah, the police sure. it was always a business option mm -hmm. for them you know it was like it was good business you know and mm -hmm. and, they, and they did it good or bad i don't know but i mean mm -hmm. you know with Leiden, he came from that position of a working class kid from north london who recognized very strongly you know they had this word in jamaica the sufferers okay. you know and that's what well, that's what they that's what they were those people mm -hmm. they were the sufferers mm -hmm. and i think that Leiden 
identified himself very much with that. And that's why when you look at Pill, mm -hmm. the first, say, let's say first three Pill records, they, they take that drum and bass heaviness from reggae mm -hmm. with him wailing over the top of it. Right, right. In a, but, but not making card reggae like mm -hmm. the police did, but making something absolutely brilliant and unique. Mm -hmm. Like the slits did as well. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anything else? No, it's been fun. You know what you need, and we'll we'll do a, a live song as well. Yeah. What do you want? To, what do you want to do? I'll do. Um, Big Trouble comes in oh. through a small door. Okay. What do you want to uh, give it a preface? Like where um, it came from? Um. No, not really. No. All right. I mean, just right. just I'll just. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't beat around the bush, man. Don't beat yeah, around the bush. <laughs> Whatever you're comfortable with, Jeff. I don't want to put you out. A skinny jack's walking down a railway track. He says I won't be coming back. I want to leave all the ways of men. They've done me wrong time and time again. Take it all I can take. Till I can't take any more Big troubles come in Through a small door Skinny Jack's lonely and he's trying to sleep He said I had a good life that I just couldn't keep Fast talking sons of bitches Stole away all my riches And it's cold out here on a killing floor, big troubles come in through a small door. Now, in a world built on competition, life is a gun full of ammunition. As your hopes and dreams get bigger, it'll pull you up and pull the trigger. No rest for the weary, no rest for the poor. Big troubles come in through a small door, through a small door, through a small door, through a small door. Skinny Jack says that I had enough. I can't live surrounded by all this stuff. Gonna move to the woods, grass for my bed, get rid of all this stuff in my head. It's all hard work and it's all a chore. Big troubles come in through a small door, through a small door, a small door. Big troubles come in through a small door. Oh, no.